Hi, uh, my name is Michael Tedder. Welcome to the Words and Guitars podcast. I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Zach Lopez. Hi. And uh, for those who are just tuning in, this is a podcast about music and music culture and music fandom and the way it impacts our lives and uh, kind of defines the way we see the world. And this podcast is an outgrowth of a reading series that Zach and I have been doing at the Bar Hi-Fi for about three years ago, about three years now. And uh, we get writers, musicians, our friends, all kinds of fun people come out. They read pieces, sometimes very much about music, sometimes barely about music or not at all about music. And it's a nice way to kind of create a community. And we thought, well, why don't we bring that into the podcast world and see if we can uh, build that community even more. Uh, so, Zach, how are you doing this fine uh, Sunday morning? I'm doing well, thank you. So, our guest today is the illustrious Liz Pelly. Hello. Uh, Liz is a writer uh, for various publications, which we'll tell you all about, and also part of the collective Silent Barn. Is that correct way to say it's a collective? Uh, yeah, I'd say I'm a collective member at that space. And uh, so today's topic is going to be DIY culture and why, frankly, I think we need more of it these days. And if you're going to talk about that topic, there's no one better, I think, to talk about than Liz Pelly. So uh, let's get started. Uh, so when did you first get introduced into the world of DIY? And for those who maybe need a refresher, how would you describe the topic and why is it something you like are so devoted to? Big question, I know. Let's just start it off right back like that. <laughs> well, <clears throat> earlier this summer, actually, I did uh, an interview for the Creative Independent where the topic was redefining the language of DIY. And I feel like I was able to articulate a lot of ideas in that conversation about the words that we use to describe what often gets called DIY culture and sort of how I feel like we're in the moment where it doesn't really mean very much to use those three letters. Um, it's kind of like the word independent. It's kind of been so applied to so many different contexts and sort of like commodified in this way that it's pretty hollow. And there are people who interpret it in so many different ways that it's kind of when someone says it, it's hard to know what they're talking about mm -hmm. because um, people use it as a way to like describe the sound of a band or something, or, you know, some people, for some people, it means something that's completely lawless and it has to be, you know, like an illegal space for it to be. Yeah. And some people it's like more about, um, autonomy, um, or the way that, um, like a, the way that like a power structure is set up or something. So I feel like there are other, other words that, um, you could use like, and often, when in conversations or in writing, when I find myself going to use that word, I'll try to catch myself and use something else. And I think that actually like a lot of people involved in Silent Barn also feel similar. And we've a lot of people within Silent Barn in the past year have been contacted for interviews about, you know, the state of DIY and DIY in New York City and like, you know, the crackdown on DIY and stuff. And I feel like a lot of people in the space and at other spaces and, you know, in general we'll try to you know point out other words that you could use um or words that we would use to describe the space that we're involved in so i think you know people who are involved in silent barn prefer to use words like or not everyone but some people um i mm -hmm. prefer to use words like artist run or collaboratively organized um uh or you know um so yeah i i feel like most recently i've been referring to it as in uh, collectively directed artists around space. 
Now, are we already <laughs> at the point with the term DIY where it's been co-opted to sell basically whatever like it was with punk and indie and alternative? Like, I haven't seen the phrase, it's the DIY beer yet used to sell uh, beer, but I figure that has to be around the corner. Yeah, I, I would say so. And then also you just get a lot of like companies that are just straight up, you know, like promotion companies or something mm -hmm. being like, we're a DIY music company or something. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, I understand. I, I feel like a lot of people also, there's this phrase that people used to really used to like, where they describe something as in the spirit of DIY. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and every time someone, you know, one of my friends pointed out that like, if you're referring to the spirit of something, that means that that thing probably doesn't exist yeah, anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Punk energy. It's got a lot of exactly. punk energy. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's like, all right. So I don't know. Um, so I don't know. I just think that's one of those classic examples of a place where we could be a little bit more precise with what, what we mean. I like um, the specificity of, uh, artist run, you know, because it, it kind of, since it can only be applied to what it exactly is, mm -hmm. it, it forces, um, other, it forces everybody to be more specific in their own language. You know, like, okay, this is an artist run space, but you're not going to be like, oh, well, uh, we're an artist run band. Yeah. You know, <laughs> obviously yeah, yeah i totally agree and i also like artists run because they're i feel like um i like to when i don't know when thinking about different like mechanisms of the culture industry um i just like thinking about it you know like is this pro artist or is this anti-artist and i feel like that's mm -hmm. a way that there's a lot of different ways to we're we're constantly in these situations where we're, we're trying to figure out oh is this good for culture is this bad for culture is this exploitative and one of the things that you can think of is like well will this help artists or will this hurt artists um so that's like another thing that i sometimes think about when i think about artists run um like not everyone would agree with all of the ways that this certain project is run but it's you know in the interest of artists to have places like this um now when you but, say i'm sorry when you say good for the artist, could you expand upon that a little bit? What are the sort of things you look for that are beneficial to the artist? And what sort of things should you, do you always try to avoid like, oh no, that's a red flag right there? Um, well, I feel like you want things to be equitable. You want to make sure that um, economically it's in the favor of people who are making stuff. Um, and that it's a place where like, uh, you know, like the, the bottom line isn't coming before um hmm. interesting <laughs> yeah i yeah i don't know i i think it's it's kind of like intuitive um mm -hmm. where it, it seems can, like something you'd have to feel out as it goes yeah. along yeah you get certain you opportunities have, yeah like this you know as soon as you have these sort of strict it it, it, it seems complicated i mean just as you're navigating any of these things because you want you need some sort of guidelines so that things are fair with right. a capital F. Mm -hmm. And well, we got into this lifestyle because we don't necessarily want a bunch of rules or a code book. Yeah, it's interesting. Rules are a really interesting topic. Like, I think that um, there are certain approaches to, um, you know, DIY where people like, don't want there to be any rules. And then there are certain approaches where actually, like, rules are really important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's always, like, an interesting balance of trying to make it a place where because if you know you want people to have like autonomy within a space but then also like um you don't want people to be like confused and lost about how something functions uh 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's weird. And I know this is, you know, we're going back, uh, whatever, uh, 2000 years, but, and it gets, uh, you know, it gets a little, uh, not cliche, but tiresome, at least on my end to always be going back to like discord and Fugazi and stuff like that. But, you know, let's do it. Um, you know, that the idea of like having no contracts and having, uh, things just being split 50, 50 and you know, not having a contract is so important. And it's like, yeah, like we don't, we don't have these rules. We have these things, but it worked because everybody, everybody obeyed this rule. Yeah. yeah. It just wasn't written down. It's really dependent on everybody being on the same page and working with each other. And, you know, that's why in humanity there are, you know, like did, did, did contracts make people yeah. dishonest and corporate minded or were they, they mm -hmm. come in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice totally. in theory, but in practice. Well, it can work in practice too. Yeah. And I think that's, no, no, yeah. that's the world you're striving for at the risk of you sounding to, like, like the sort of person who says the world you're striving for. But, um, you just hope everyone's on the same page as you said. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, can you talk a little bit how you first got interested in this sort of culture? Like, what was your first exposure to, like, a real DIY music or real DIY scene? I suppose it was, you know, like, I didn't grow up with any of the language of, of um, <coughs> punk or any kind of real music community or anything like that. But um, You grew up in Long Island, right? I grew up on Long Island, yeah, and was kind of, like, you know, w my sister and I would kind of, like, sometimes go to, you know, emo and hardcore mm -hmm. and... Um, you know, screamo shows and yeah. stuff like that. And some of those shows were, you know, put on by kids in temples. And over the course of our high school and early college years, we, you know, like convinced our parents to like, throw backyard shows or something like that. And there were kids in our town who would like throw shows in their parents' backyards and stuff. So I guess technically that was kind of like my first brush with some sort of, um, you know, like self-made youth-oriented music culture but at the time I just we didn't really have any of the language for it it was just kind of like oh we're bored this is a fun thing to do um but I, I think it was probably like a little bit later when I was living in Boston and um started going to basement shows in Boston that I kind of you know understood it as this um culture that was connected to like other cities and stuff and started meeting you know touring folks for the first time and helping put on shows and stuff like that um, uh, was probably, yeah, like later on in, in college when I started, you know, booking shows and, um, you know, having sort of a understanding that it was this thing bigger than just like, you know, the kids in your town throwing backyard shows. <laughs> were, were you, do you think you were more, sorry, do you think you were more drawn to the music and the aesthetics or was it the community aspects that was most appealing to you? And I know it's hard to weigh them out, but, and you don't have to. Mm -hmm. I feel, yeah, I think that like being involved in, uh, organizing shows has always been more of a community thing or, um, yeah, it's always been something that I've been drawn to more because it's, this great medium that allows for like participation. And I think I feel like I've always been drawn to music because actually it's such like a multidisciplinary type of creative world where, mm -hmm. you know, there's like musicians, but there's also like writers and photographers and people who are doing visual art. And it's like this, you know, 
type of space where so many different types of people meet because mm-hmm. like out of all the different types of like creative spaces that exist, it's one that actually has this wild tradition of like people meeting up in a place multiple times a week. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. That's, it's funny because that's what I was saying earlier. That's kind of why the reason we do the reading series and the podcast is like, once you get into music world, that's kind of the gateway for everything. Like me just like reading Rolling Stone was actually how I first read like any sort of leftist politics, as silly as it may sound. And like, me like following the bands I love is how I discovered like filmmakers and like how I made most of my friends in high school and college. It's like such a gateway to any sort of thing like that. Yeah. It's just music is sort of how you can get into almost anything else. Or at least it was for people like us. It's obviously not that way for everyone. Yeah, totally. I feel like, I don't know. I've spent a lot of time thinking about how, uh, it can be like kind of inaccessible for people to get to, um, you know, some of those more, like, nuanced political ideals if you're growing up just, like, in the suburbs or even, mm-hmm. like, just without a cool older brother or sister to, like, point you in the right direction. But um, music is kind of this thing that, you know, people are drawn to for one thing, but then it turns into all these other things, and that's not a very articulate way of no. saying it. Well, I was going to you, you, you and your sister are the same age? Yeah, we're twins. You're twins, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So, so you guys have to sort of serve as each other's older cooler yeah. sister getting into each other things or yeah it- totally twins are weird because it's this thing where like i feel like when you when it's like the cool older sibling vibe it's like this person knows what's up and you just kind of learn from them but mm-hmm. like with twins it's like you just get into something and then whether or not it's cool or not the other person's just like yeah let's do it and then like you're just like egging each other on and like um kind of i don't know it's i i feel like we've talked to other twins about this how uh you just kind of like, it's just this energy. If you're interested in the same stuff, it can be kind of this like energizing thing where, uh, you, yeah, you have an idea and then the other person just like confirms it and you're like, cool, let's do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there any, th- th- this just occurred to me. I don't know why I've never asked you this before. Is there any band that one of you hates and the other one loves? Because you guys seem to be generally, you know, I mean, you guys are both very supportive, obviously, but you seem to be on the same page for a lot of things. Well, this is kind of... I don't want to start anything. No, this is, like, pretty embarrassing, but, like, it's not even embarrassing. (laughs) Fucking whatever. Like, (laughs) I like folk punk. Like, I don't care. (laughs) Like, when I was in college, I, like, had a radio show where I played, like, with one of my friends where we played folk, folk punk, and punk. Um, And that was, like, the, the... theme of it um and i've always been kind of into you know like um that kind of like music. defiance ohio yeah like, like that okay, kind of okay. stuff okay. All right. for uh, the listener for the listener who might be not be familiar with like, you don't need to me, don't like play that. that kind of music on this show please <laughs> um uh yeah so i'm like you know my sister hates it and like i i don't know i understand why she hates it i guess but I'll, that's probably that's like that's an early example of like when we were in college something that like I really liked that she never got into, but like, you know, whatever. I, I feel like I learned, a, I, that, I learned a lot about I don't think that's embarrassing. Yeah. I, feel like I think, I think that's bad. a case where you're both right. Yeah. yeah you're I think absolutely so both right. Cause but, that is a pretty appealing stuff and it's really, you know, yeah. Can be pretty bad so too. some of that stuff, like, I don't know. I felt at the time when I was like getting into it, it was like, you know, politically engaged music at a time where there wasn't a lot of right. politically engaged indie rock or whatever. Um, or maybe there was, and I just didn't know about it, 
probably which is probably the case um and yeah let me think is there anything else so to... now when you, whenever you guys are fighting you, you can just sing wagon wheel at her like a really <laughs> no. shrill volume yeah. yeah when we were really young when we were children um me and my mom really liked the song believe by Cher oh, and uh sure. Jen hated okay. it <laughs> and we had this one like family road trip where like for some reason because Jen hated it we decided to just play it like the, the, the single cut CD and just decide to play it. On you and your on, mom. Yeah, play it on repeat for like five hours in the car. Wow. And so your mom must really like you better. <laughs> <laughs> nah. But yeah, that's that's an early example. I don't know. I, we... I think, like, we don't have all of the, like, very same favorite music, but for the most part, I feel like, uh, you know, I learn about so much new music from my sister. Like, whenever people are like... I like and I feel like I learn a lot of... Um, like music history kind of from Jen and that maybe she learns about like new underground bands sometimes from me, you know, cause she, uh, will tell me about like some, you know, eighties reissue that she was just editing a album review for, for some like band that I'd never heard of, um, from 30 years ago. And I'll tell her about some band that I just booked at silent barn. That's like, you know, college freshman from upstate or something that she's never heard of. And right. you know, we kind of like, um, teach each other about a lot of new music in that way. Her, her book on the raincoats is coming out soon. Oh, for right? those who don't know, the person we're talking about is Jen Pelly. She's like an editor at Pitchfork, and mm-hmm. she also recently wrote a book about the raincoats. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just when does that come out? Yeah, her book comes out. Her book comes out the first week of October. I think it's October 5th or October 4th. Um, and then she just announced her book release events, which are at the kitchen, um, November. Second, third, and fourth, I think. Yeah. And the rain, Gina and Anna from the Raincoats are coming over, and they're going to wow. have conversations in the kitchen about them. So everyone should get tickets to those. That's the one thing I'll plug. Right. And that's funny because I first met the Pelly Twins close to a decade ago, because good Lord, I'm old, uh, when I was an editor at CMJ. And yeah, they were always around. Like Yeah, well, I was your intern. You were my intern. Yeah. And like Jim would come by the office a lot. Yeah. And occasionally I wouldn't be able to tell the two of you apart, but eventually I got to know you both better. I'm like, okay, okay, that's her and that's her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun. I was, I like wrote a bunch of stuff for the CMJ website. Mm-hmm. Ah, uh, CMJ. Those uh. days. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good segue into everything going out of business. Yeah. So like, you brought me vegan baklava one day from Whole Foods. I remember I did that. Yes. I never forget. <laughs> It's like, wow, that's so nice. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> uh, it's like a CMJ. I th- now, I need. I would need to double check this. It's possible the CMJ website is back up again, but... Uh, it I is? Work- it's possible. No, it's not. Because uh, I worked there right as CMJ was kind of like dwindling away. And I have nothing... Okay. I have, so, I have different feelings about CMJ, but my ultimate takeaway is I'm very happy I got a first job in the New York music industry. I'll always be grateful to uh, the people who hired me. I still have some good friends. But like right as I got there, they quit publishing the monthly magazine and they had like the website, which was like basically run by two people and a ton of interns, thanks again. And <laughs> no uh, problem. Every, it's definitely where I kind of like learned a lot about the game and like learned how to be a, a writer and editor. But like every year we saw it dwindle more and more. And at the time, like looking back at that night time, 2008, 2010, those seem like boom times compared to what we have now. Uh, now, uh, say what you will about the websites and their quality of writing. Uh, recently, MTV, which I think had a great civil writers, has pivoted the video. And just this week, I uh, read that Mick laid off a bunch of his writers and is also pivoting the video. Is it pronounced Mick? Mick, Mick or Mike? Mike. Probably I Mike. I assume Mike. Mike. I, I don't know. 
Well, all right. I'm not trying to correct you. No, it's you're fine. Probably, it's probably it's probably Mike. I, I, I I'm not great pronunciation. Uh, pivot the video, uh, which is one of those wonderful. I think sum up one of those phrases. I think will unfortunately sum up the year 2017. Pivot the video. Uh, the point being, there's less and less outlets. It seems for good writing these days. Unless you kind of turn to the moral world that you operate in these days of the, the DIY sphere, uh, you have your publication, the media, right? And uh, so tell us a little about that publication and just about how you kind of thrive in that sort of more ecosystem of, you know, like non-corporate media taken into your own hands. All right. Let me think. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. All right. So was that, I'll, too, I'll, was that too broad of a question? I'll start by explaining what the project is, and yeah. then um, and then I'll talk a little bit about how that sort of supplements like the other sort of um, writing work that I'm involved in. Because you know, like that's a project that's really important to me, but I also it's kind of like a one piece of the puzzle. That yes. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so yeah, the media. It's is a it's a project that I. Um, some friends and I started in uh, 2013. My friend Faye Orlov, who's a visual artist, and I started um, uh, after we had been working at um, the Boston Phoenix and Alt Weekly in Boston, and it shut down, and we all lost our jobs. And a couple months later, um, you know, we had this idea to just kind of start our own. We liked, we thought that it would be important to create some sort of publication that maintains the rhythm of something coming out in issues like serial publication. Um, so we just like put together the first issue, um, with like five articles and I, Faye came up with this brilliant design where it looks like a newspaper on the page and it's really basic and it's just like built in text edit every issue. Um, and yeah, so there've been 70 something issues wow. over the past uh, four years. Um, and at first we would do it every week and there'd be, you know, one or two features. Um, the idea was always to have like one reported feature and then one that was sort of more of an essay, um, and then a mixtape and a comic and a video and a photo essay. Um, and you know, that format has changed a lot over the years. Um, we did it weekly on, for the first few months and then switched to monthly. No, we switched to biweekly and now it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's been going for four years We and it's not as active now as it was when we first launched it, but um, we still put up a new issue every once in a while when um, <coughs> we have time right. and energy to like put something out. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been like, uh, uh, I mean, at, at various times it's been more active and less active and at periods of time when it's been like a very active project, it's been, um, you know, I don't know, a huge source of like inspiration for me in a way that I've met a lot of my really good friends and people who I consider myself to be, um, in community with in terms of like, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, the, the thing, I mean, I really like the media and, you know, thinking about other sites you know, that, that do that sort of thing, or, you know, and we can talk about it later, but, uh, you know, whether there are enough sites and what sort of alternative media means at, at, at this juncture. Um, you know, I, you know, I was thinking about this earlier when Michael was mentioning the people, you know, a lot of the sites that let people go 
to pivot to video. Um, I sort sort of like full disclosure or whatever, you know, I, I, most of my freelance work I do for noisy and vice who also let a lot of people go. We I don't want to like not mention that just cause uh, mm-hmm. they pay my rent. God bless them. Shane Smith, keep that money coming. Um, but, uh, but as people, there are, there are some people who quite reasonably take issue with, uh, with vice. I, uh, in including, you know, uh, some of the angels that, that irritatingly reside on my shoulder. Uh, I also end up, uh, I write for cash music, Watt, um, which is this great, um, not nonprofit mm-hmm. music site that, um, a lot of the kill rock stars, people and Maggie Vale, um, do. And that's sort of how, you know, and, uh, at, at a lighter date and uh, not to burden Liz with this, but, you know, I can, I can defend vice if I have to. All right. I can do it. That being said, the Watt stuff helps me sleep at night. And uh, mm-hmm. I know that uh, you work for a, a diverse group of media companies yourself. Yeah, totally. I feel like, um, you know, us, like most freelance writers, who are trying to make a living, but also have certain like boundaries about what you feel comfortable with or don't feel comfortable with engaging with. Um, I feel like we're all just kind of like putting together our own like, you know, puzzle of outlets that we feel good about or whatever. And everyone has their own, you know, boundaries and places that, um, hmm. yeah, I don't know. I like, I feel like I, I like having a good balance of like places that, um, hmm. I'm to think of the right way to say <laughs> no, that. No, like we're all professionals. We yeah. all need to make a living. And like me personally, I'm like, so uh, men's magazine, you want to pay me to interview, interview a male model for the f- uh, interview that will go with your photo shoot. And it's how much? Yes, I'll do that. Is it my personal passion in life? No, but it doesn't necessarily violate my ethics or whatever. It's fine. Well, I think okay. it does. It does get a little. It gets a little weird because, and I and I say this as someone who's very comfortable writing for the sites that I write for. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am always curious as where the line is between sort of just being accepting of people's personal decisions mm-hmm. and going along to get along. You right. know, if you look at like. And I'm I, I'm not trying to get back to like some like the '60s where people in the media were just constantly tearing at each other. And yeah. you know, that being said, you know it's it's always strange. You know, when somebody and these are all people I really respect. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone say from like Maximum Rock and Roll will be like saying, you know, this the you know you can't write you shouldn't write for these sites, um, and they're coming from a sort of place from of purity, and then someone who's their friend will be say, well, I write for those sites. And then they'll be like, well, you know, I understand that you have to do this. And, you know, and, and I do this, you know, and then we're all just kind of like being like, oh, oh, yeah, well, I know you have to do what you have to do, but Uh you know, this hypothetical other, other evil group that they shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like, it's so arbitrary to be trying to decide like what works for, other people and that you just need to like figure out what works for yourself. Everybody um, is somebody's friend who gets a pass. 
Yeah. And I like, I don't know. I feel like pretty comfortable, you know, like going on the record being like, I fucking hate Vice. And that's like one of my lines. Like I would never write for them, but I'm not going to, like, I also like, there are people who work there who I do think like are like really cool and do like good work or whatever. It's just not like uh, something that I would ever want to do. And I like, you know, like I don't want to do sponsored content, but there are people I know who do and like it, fine for like i don't care you know it's, it's, well I, <laughs> yeah. I, I i think it's i think i guess i think I, I agree with you and i and but i think also and i'm not trying to beat up on myself you know because you're not you're not doing that but i but i'm i do think that uh when you write for these sites like in the same way that i don't think you can call yourself you know a totally like devout catholic and and still be totally liberal and progressive because there are certain like rules that go with it and just then just don't be this thing mm-hmm. and i i write for vice and i love writing for vice i'm not a punk i mm-hmm. can't call myself a punk right and write for vice i cannot do that yeah that is that would be that's that's grotesque um but i'm not you know so these are these are the compromises i made in life and these are the choices i made so, but it doesn't mean that you like, I think someone like Kim Kelly is a great example of someone who's a, an amazing political activist mm-hmm. and still an anarchist and was going and putting her, you know, body on the line last weekend and last weekend mm-hmm. and works for vice, you know, she also doesn't call herself a punk. So yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's, it's always the navigation, but I also don't think that those of us that make these choices d- deserve some sort of like free ride to call ourselves whatever we want to clarify i mean and i appreciate liz is kind of ambiguously nodding her head shaking her head i know like "Eh." i know this podcast (laughs) will post later i was referring to the charlottesville protest last week Uh, kim kelly who was a writer an editor and a very wonderful person we'll get on this podcast very soon was a activist last week at the charlottesville anti-nazi protests yeah and she wrote a great article about Mm -hmm. that experience yeah for al jazeera And like me personally, like I've written for Playboy. I've written, I did one piece for Vice and eh, it wasn't a great experience. So like, I can't, <laughs> I definitely cannot be like, I won't, I used to be like, I won't do Vice. So someone like, well, I don't know. Exposure is exposure. Like I definitely also would never call myself a punk because I'm from Orlando, Florida. And I feel if you're from Disney World, you've just lost that right completely. Like, I think there's probably some punks from Orlando, Florida. Yeah. Don't yeah. Me- yeah, it's interesting. I feel like lately, like, a you know, political value that I've been holding really important is being my own boss, mm-hmm. which I feel like all freelance writers can kind of relate to. And I think maybe people don't acknowledge enough is that like, in addition to engaging with all this stuff, you're kind you're like really responsible for like your whole, you know, body of work and, yeah. and everything. And I think, I don't know, it's hard to do. And I think it's like commendable when people can figure out how to just like do this shit completely. Right. Like, um, cause even, you know, you're engaging with, all these different outlets but like at the end of the day like you're doing shit on your own terms and like deciding when you do and don't Mm -hmm. want to and like you know from a day on a day-to-day basis like deciding like what you do and and don't want to do and like it's all like your own decisions so that that feels good that feels good like sometimes i'll you know write something for an outlet that like i have had hmm. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to say because I also like you know for the past few years I've been in um, like work, half working at Silent Barn and then like half freelancing so I have a little bit more like lenience in like what kind of um, 
outlets I'm writing for because it's not like my full um, job. Um, Do, does, yeah. does does Silent Barn provide enough fin- like like financial security in that way, or is it? Not really. I mean, we. So, I mean, as a part time, like you. To yeah, line, as I was like bartending and working shows for right. oh, a, yeah. a while, okay. and we get paid from that. And then the um, some of the people who do programming there also get a stipend too, okay. which is like helpful for sure, and something that I'm really grateful for. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's really important. Well, I think that's reason. Sorry, I didn't mean no, you. Uh, I think it is like that. That brings up even another thing of just like side work. Yeah. And, and like they're not being any, I mean, what you're doing is like even on every level sort of admirable because you're doing the two passions, but I, I you know, I, I tend bar so that I'm never tempted to write the 50 hottest women in tech, you yeah. know, I, I, anytime and no, you know, nobody asked me to do that stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. But like when I first started writing, occasionally someone would be like, Hey, can you do this listicle about some shit you don't care about? Yeah. And I'd be like, no, I have my Monday and Tuesday shift. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know? totally. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and for those who might not know, can you tell us a little bit about the Silent Barn? Oh, yeah. And how did you first get involved with that? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, so Silent Barn is, as explained earlier, a collab- collectively run artist-run space in Bushwick um, that has, you know, uh, it's a three-story building that has a show space on the first floor where there are all ages shows every night and then um, a second and third floor where there's artist in residency program and then there's a bunch of artist studios in the back. Um, And I first got involved when I lived there for three years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I had like been living in Boston and then was like traveling around for a while and then Honestly, just I like, didn't really know what to do with my life. So I saw that there was an opening to like live at Silent Barn. So I applied for it and then I moved there and now I'm here. I don't know. <laughs> it all <laughs> happened pretty fast, actually. Like I applied to live there and they got back to me on like December 15th and were like, yeah, do you want to move in next week? Like we have an opening like right now. And I was like, sure. And I just like, you know, moved in. And uh, Silent Barn was a great place where I wish I went more often. I just, you know, you get old and you don't go as much as you used to. But like, you, when I first moved to New York, there were all these great DIY venues where you could like go see a show and like maybe the band wouldn't be great, but it would at least be interesting and you would meet interesting people. But as time goes by, we have less and less of those because of gentrification, because Vice needs a new office, because of this and because of that. And like you, uh, so the, the listener can't see me rolling my eyes right now, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Silent Barn is in many ways one of the people like kind of holding it down. Uh, what is it? What are the challenges these days to keeping a venue like that going with everything, you know, with all it's up against? Hmm. I think that everyone who's involved in the space probably would have a different answer to that question about what the, the hardest part to keep me going is. But um, I probably say just like the astronomical cost of rent, which is, you know, upwards of $15,000 a month for that building. Um, and it's like a lot of money to raise just on like, booking weird shows that no one really cares about and selling mm-hmm. um, Tecate. <laughs> um, actually, we just got our liquor license, so you can also buy uh, shots of liquor there now, too. Oh, nice. Um, but we don't have an ice machine, so you can't buy cocktails yet. But at some point, I guess. Um, Are you thinking about getting an ice machine as a thing? Uh, so we have... If you can avoid great, it, do it. Black okay. mold sucks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have um, a great like bar manager who handles oh, okay. all those logistics, and I think that... <laughs> 
I think Ice Machine is on the list, but honestly, like, it's, you know, it's the kind of space where, like, everyone has their, like, autonomous control over things, so I don't really know all the details of the bar build-out, but it's happening soon, I think. Um, yeah, so that, you know, that that part is um, challenging from my perspective. I think most people would agree that yeah. like, the cost of rent is Now, is that really 15000 for the whole building? Does uh-huh. that, does that, so that... So there's some people paying rent to live for the, for their living yeah. space. So it's not the fifteen thousand doesn't have to come directly just from shows. No shows. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, no, no. I'm like, Woof. And also, if people, if anyone listening is interested in the financial realities of the silent barn, and like our financial manager uh, Jordan Michael, actually, um, who also like book shows and stuff, um, he a co- earlier this summer made this whole report that basically just details the history of the silent barn bank account and shows you like the like profit and loss and different um uh you know like where our money came from where we lost money where we spent money um for the past you know since this building opened from 2013 to present and made this like really robust um presentation and published it publicly online and then also like wrote a bunch of commentary to go along with it and um anyone can find that online um if you you know google like silent barn financial yeah that report. transparency is really ad- um, admirable and, mm-hmm. yeah that's all all out there and yeah like do you guys have meetings too you guys have like do you or is that to members or uh yeah or so like up? there's like a lot of different types of meetings that happen usually it's like you know like working groups or specific people working on a project together um full collective wide meetings are really rare because there's just like so many different moving parts and stuff like that um although they should be more frequent i think that would you know but we had um earlier this summer we tried to do an event where um you know it was like a public q a and anyone could ask questions about um the financial report and so on a Friday night, like not very many people came. I think in <laughs> retrospect, we were like, oh, like most people didn't want to spend their Friday night asking questions about this financial document. But, um, you know, I don't know. I'm sure that if anyone ever, you know, had questions like for the person who created it, that he'd be happy time to answer them. Yeah. 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 Seriously. Um, but yeah, so that I think that's probably the biggest challenge and honestly, probably why you don't see more spaces like that um popping up but there's also you know the whole like i think that for a lot of reasons there it's a lot harder to have a space like that and not have it fully up to code and compliant with um you know like the all the requirements of the fire department department of health um sla and uh who else am I forgetting? Department of Buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, Has there been an uptick in crackdowns? Um, yeah. Where? So, which I feel like, you know, is like for better or worse because like buildings should be safe for people. Um, but it's uh, also often requires a lot of financial investment that people just like don't have who are starting these spaces. Um, but yeah, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of, not a lot of, but like several underground spaces have been shut down in recent years by this NYPD-led um, joint task force called the MARCH program, which stands for Multi-Agency Responses to Community Hotspots, which is like when the Department of Buildings, the Fire Department, the Police Department, the SLA, and uh, 
Department of Health. I'll show up at the same time and just like issue like a bunch of tickets that make it like impossible for a space to bounce back basically. Um, and I feel like that is kind of like, there's like, there's kind of like this whole, I think I've heard people refer to it as sort of like this like toolbox of like ways that like if the city decides that they want to shut down a space that is like a nuisance or they deem as like unsafe or, or whatever. Um, and one is like the March program. So a lot of people have been calling for like more transparency um, for that. And then another is um, uh, the cabaret law, um, which is like the city's, you know, like no dancing rule. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, which, it's been there since the third. Do you know that? Yeah. So it was, I think it was 1926. It was created during prohibition. Um, and it was largely created as a way to like shut down jazz clubs in Harlem. Mm -hmm. Um Good old institutionalized racism. Yeah, totally. So it's always been used as a tool that like disproportionately affected marginalized communities. Um, and there's like some groups that have popped up that are like trying to like raise awareness of uh, the, you know, history of the cabaret law and like the need for it to be repealed. Um, there's, I just, um, a couple of weeks ago did like a short interview with someone from this group called the dance liberation network. That is like a group of um, organizers kind of more in like the dance music. And they've been arrested. Scene. So I think under Giuliani. Um, oh, the cabaret law. No, or, no, no, the, oh, the dance. Liber I think the dance liberation network, like I think is a kind of new thing that was started by someone who's involved in bossa Nova like, oh, okay. more recently. Um, but I actually like, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, and they've been like working with a city council member, city council member who um proposed legislation to repeal it um, or proposed a bill to repeal it uh and yeah hopefully that happens because and it the just law basically like says that what people people who if you have more than eight people dancing in an unlicensed something like that yeah well it just says that, like you can't have like dancing in and it's like a space that doesn't have a cabaret license um, right. and right like currently you know there's like over a thousand bars and venues in new york city and i think like 80 of them have a cabaret license so um yeah it's just kind of like this thing that is like like if all places with the cabaret law were going to be shut down that'd be like you know hundreds of places mm -hmm. and it seems it seems like this tool that is pretty arbitrarily used just whenever um uh the city decides they want to shut a place down which yeah it's also le legally mandated that if you are dancing, a couple's dancing, you have to leave room for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Sick. Well, I support that part then. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about something uh, as long as we're talking about like DIY and like with the with less and less bigger outlets for writing and exposure for bands these days. Zach wrote a great piece recently about if your band can't get into pitchfork or whatever here are some other places you might want to pitch i want you to talk about that and what was the impetus behind that idea and like <clears throat> well the thing is i mean I, the impetus was uh clairvoyant went under mm -hmm. which was um fred Pacero from who left noisy um he started the site with town square media uh yeah town yeah um, it lasted about a year i think it lasted about a year and uh <clears throat> and it was sort of a, a medium-sized site that I think a lot of um, mainly, well, really only guitar bands uh, could submit to um, get a premiere, you know, and again, and it gets in this weird space where, you know, what good are premieres? Do any, does anybody look at them? Does anyone listen to them? And I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And I, and I talk about this in the piece. I don't mm -hmm. understand a, 
fucking thing about how the industry works after this many years. I don't know who clicks on what. Uh, I don't know. That being said, mm-hmm. people like having premieres. Artists like having coverage. Yeah. Um, presumably, somebody likes reading about bands. You know, mm-hmm. someone. Someone. Yeah. We're all operating under this. You know. Yeah. Um, so uh, basically, when Clairvoyant went under, um, I was just sort of thinking. I, I basically I took to Twitter. You know the the DIY space of Twitter uh, mm-hmm. to. Uh, to ask people what sites they liked that were small to medium that um, you could conceivably get into if you were um, a small band, a band that um, was not getting hyped, a band that was no longer getting hyped, mm-hmm. um, a band without PR, yeah, a band with PR that doesn't have anybody that hangs out in bars in New York city. Um, the, the pub, anyone, yeah, and, if you were not one of the three big publicists, that yeah. have to pay attention and the to. thing is also with, and like, listen, because of the financial realities, publicity companies, even ones that I like, the ones that I'm friends with, they, they, you know, if they have more than one employee, I guarantee you they have too many clients because they have to take in enough people to pay for, whatever their intern. Mm-hmm. So that means there's going to be almost, you know, I'm sure there's some ex- exceptions to this, but invariably they're going to have, you know, 10 repping 10 bands mm-hmm. and you can't, you cannot adequately rep 10 bands. If you're right. one or two people, you can't do it. You can send out mass emails for one of them, but there's always going to be the two or three that make the most, that are easiest or your, your biggest things. And they're the people that you do the personal approach to yeah. anyway. So, I wanted to have a, a list of sites that people that were either not that were maybe not prioritized by their PR company mm-hmm. or don't have PR or you know are are truly a DIY band that they could write and say, please cover my band. Yeah, because uh, the way it is, just as the you know more and more wealth in this country goes to the one percent, it does seem like these days more and more music coverage goes like the top pop artists that we all agree are pretty cool and like a handful of like popular rappers and maybe like one or two rock bands maybe and everyone else kind of has to fend for themselves it seems a lot these days well and that's the thing is this do you think this is true we were talking about it earlier a little bit off off mic about sorry well we, we were talking about i think you you were sort of making an interesting counterpoint about how there actually were a lot of oh yeah um things to check out <laughs> yeah totally i feel like you know, this, the article that you wrote for Watt, I think, um, speaks to sort of this phenomenon that I've observed recently where I feel like people actually are kind of like at a loss for where to discover new music. And it's this moment where we have to like remind people of the ways to discover music that's not just like their newsfeed because often, you know, like your newsfeed will just be, it's like this thing where like the loudest voices rise to the top. Mm-hmm. So like if you're just looking through your like Facebook or Twitter newsfeed for new music, like what you are just going to see like, you know, the pitchfork and stereo gum stuff and like the, you know, things with the most retweets or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, or whatever the algorithm has decided you missed while you were away <laughs> or something like that, you know? Um, and, uh, because people have so become, I feel like people have become so dependent on just like convenience and just having stuff, 
you know, given to them when they open their their laptops or whatever. Like we kind of are at this moment where we have to like step back and like remember to intentionally like go visit outlets that will show you stuff that's not just what um you know the the Facebook newsfeed algorithm deems as uh what you would want to see like because it's the thing that everyone you're connected to most wants to see of course um, and it's really yeah. self-perpetuating too because like yeah. it's sort of like if we're all online and we're all talking to each other online and maybe we don't see each other you know all mm -hmm. the time and someone's talking about and all they're talking about is like the new Arcade Fire album. Right. Well, we're like, oh, I, I can talk to this person about this. This is a conversation we can have. We can make our jokes, go, or we mm -hmm. can defend it and this and the other thing. But if you're talking about some band I've never heard of, mm -hmm. well, I don't, I don't have any jokes about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I always, I don't know, I had this like image that popped into my head like a couple of years ago um, of just like, you know, like the Bandcamp link that just gets like lost to like the newsfeed or something like this band works on their album forever and they're so they're like and we're just going to post it on Bandcamp on this day and then they do and just like no one sees mm -hmm. it and like mm -hmm. you know like i don't know and to me i just like i think of like you know all that stuff that's like coming out every day that just like no one ever finds out about because they the echo chamber doesn't so yes. doesn't favor it or mm -hmm. something and i feel like that's like i don't know like that image like helps me like like remember that like these ways of discovering music like don't serve underground artists and i think for a lot of people like you know in like punk that's obvious or whatever like yeah like obviously i'm not gonna you know find out about new punk bands by like looking at like a facebook news feed or whatever but i think that i don't know i just feel like people have have to like occasionally be reminded that like the way to discover new music is to like keep up with your favorite labels or keep up with your favorite blogs or whatever and like go to shows or like even if you can't go to shows like going to like the silent barn website and looking at who's playing there that week is like a good way to find out music or like i've i don't know i feel like there more used to be more of the sense of like adventure or something where people would like click around like oh like i'm on this person's myspace and this is everyone in their top eight and i'm going to open all these windows and go listen to like all of these songs and like or i'm on this blog and i'm going to open like all of their recent posts and download all the mp3s or i used to like you know like when i have my college radio show like go to all of my favorite like music blogs in 2009 and like open up like every window of like everything they had posted and listen to everything and decide what i was going to download for my radio show or whatever and now it's just kind of like oh like let me click on release radar and like see what came out this Friday. <laughs> this, yeah. Well, I think, it's a, I think, I think you raise a good point also that uh, it's not like this stuff might be self-evident to people that came up in punk and hardcore. Mm -hmm. And then I think to some other people who didn't, they might even sort of like, is reify the right word? Let's say it is um, sort of being like, oh, well, I don't, only the undiscovered stuff is, is punk and hardcore stuff, which I don't care about anyway. But say you've got terrible taste and you like Father John Misty. There is, you know, there's, uh, there's new and, uh, there's new and undiscovered Father John Misty's for you to find, it's you a, know, and there, and you should, you should explore it. And, uh, um, you know, cause when I go on like, sorry, when, when I go on like, you know, even something like the gray estate, which I love, you know, I haven't heard of any of those bands any of them 
And sometimes I'll click on some of these bands and I'll, you know, because I'm old as fuck, you know, and I only like Godflesh anyway, mm-hmm. you know, I'll click on some of these bands and I'm like, oh, this sounds like the Lemonheads to me or Juliana Hatfield. And I'm, this is not interesting to me. But, Ooh, tell me who this is. I'd listen to it. <laughs> I'll, 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 I got a list of about 80 I can send you. Um, but it, but who gives a shit, you know, to someone else, this is going to be like their mixtape fodder for like mm-hmm. their entire, you know, all of the romantic endeavors of 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, isn't that like, I don't know part of like digging to find something you actually like is you'll listen to like a bunch of shit that you hate and then you'll find like one thing that oh, you really God, like. God, it's so satisfying. You know? And it's like, in a way, I feel we kind of took MySpace for granted because as terrible as that site could be, it was a really nice way to find like new undiscovered bands. Yeah. Like not just the big stuff we knew like Vampire Weekend, Arctic Monkeys that blew up, but there's like lots of small little bands I discovered. Like maybe I only liked one song of theirs, but I loved that one song in like 2007 or whatever. Well, MySpace was so weird because it was also so... Like, you know, everybody just taking their shirt off that you would get, <laughs> you would get like messages from bands that you'd never heard of that were coming to town. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. when my band would tour, I would, I w- would look up every single person that liked, you know, every person in Idaho that liked, you know, goth and drive like Jehu. Yeah. And I'd be like, dit, 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 you know, <laughs> and you know, 90% of the time people would be like, not interested, but yeah. you know. But you was, never know. You never yeah. know. And it's like, I feel like, the platforms through which um, music is discovered like used to be more participatory in that way where like, you know, I think of how um, Spotify used to have a messaging client within the Mm -hmm. application where if someone made a playlist that you really liked, you could message them. Um, But that doesn't exist anymore because I feel like, and I don't know like why the fuck this isn't a thing anymore, but now it's just, I feel like, I feel like that says a lot that a platform like Spotify would like take out the messaging element of it. The, the part where you could actually connect with the person who made a playlist or a person who like put up their record or something like you, because they're trying to sort of like bolster their own brand and make it seem like a magic platform where it's just like, no, people didn't make these playlists. Spotify made them. And it's about like brand magic or something. Right. I have a lot of feelings about Spotify, but like that's something that sticks out to me is like how it, you know, the, the people behind certain, uh, like, you know, playlists or um, just responsible for creating certain, like, spaces used to, there used to be, like, more, there's, like, more conversation and I don't know. Well, let's explore, um, let's, let's actually, let's talk about your feelings about Spotify, you know, because it's, mm-hmm. uh, it is interesting, you know, just, to, I mean, I know you've written extensively about them, mm-hmm. um, which you guys can tell the details of what you wrote about. Yeah, go on. Okay, yeah. So I wrote, I published this article in June called The Secret Lives of Playlists uh, that I actually like didn't realize until the day it got published that I had started working on it literally a, a whole year before. I looked at like the first time I emailed someone for like Where'd requesting an interview. It was on Watt. Um, yeah, Watts, which is um, what Zach referenced earlier is so the pub- Cash Music's um, editorial outlet um and cash music is you know i don't know we started talking about it but is it's like awesome maggie um, if you're listening come on anytime <laughs> but yeah there are a, uh it's a platform that kind of provides open source tools to artists so that they can have like more kind of control over how their music is distributed online which is you know it's 
very fitting that this article about Spotify was published there because I feel like Spotify and platforms like it are like completely at odds to the ethos of cash music, which like cash music wants you to have more control over how your music is represented and distributed, where Spotify like wants you is like wants complete control over how how music is distributed and represented. It's like it's like the complete to me it seems like it's they're like completely at odds with each other so anyway this article um uh i kind of i started writing it because i learned about the major label owned playlist brands um which are you know filter Dixer, and topsify they're there are these like certain playlists that you'll find on the browse page on spotify that are like actually literally owned by major labels and they go in and they plug in their own artists so they start building up plays that on um, their own catalogs which then pumps their music into like the algorithmically created playlists on spotify and it's just kind of this way that like um you know like major labels have this like sort of like uh sort of just like direct pump into like the spotify playlist world or whatever and you know that was like intriguing to me so i kind of started like pursuing that but then as i because I never like listened to Spotify playlists before, like or like even really used the like Spotify very much. Um, uh, ex and this, so I didn't actually really know very much about the playlisting world before this. But like through sort of like um, interviewing people about those um, types of playlists, like learned so much about how this whole world works and how. Um, all the different ways that like labels and artists are like promoting to these playlists. There's kind of like this whole like industry that has popped up around promoting to playlists. And I learned all about how like all the different um, algorithmically created ones work and like um, about, you know, I like interviewed someone who works for one of the um, major label playlisting brands. And I interviewed someone who works at a major label um, who talked about like their whole digital marketing strategy and how Spotify plays in, but then also kind of like how in some ways it seems like Spotify is like trying to, you know, like replace record labels and like certain things that happen on the platform that seem like um, this way that they're almost like trying to make labels obsolete. Well, that's why, you know, that's why it's, it's hard to figure out uh, who, who, who the villain is. Yeah, exactly. And I need, I need a villain at yeah. all times. Yeah, no, totally. Like, it is really hard. Like, there, there were people who I'd who I would interview, like expecting that I would everything they'd say I thought would be like bullshit, and then I talk to them, and like actually I like agree with a lot of what they're saying, or like there would be like you know someone pros from and cons. Spotify or people I didn't from talk Facebook. to anyone from Spotify actually, okay. but like you know like the like, like label like I I think I you know I thought I went into it thinking that. Spotify was this like a collaboration or this like collusion between all the major labels and Spotify, which in many ways it is, but like actually like in some ways, you know, Spotify is trying to like replace them. Yeah. Spotify is mm -hmm. trying to replace labels. So like talking even to people from like major labels, like it's not easy. It's, I want to feel like it's not, it's not like <laughs> very easy for them. Like it is easier for them than it is for any other indie labels or independent labels. Um, but it's not like, you know, like it's not it's it's there's still there's blocks to like any labels because they Spotify is like trying to be the most powerful entity like in the music industry basically um and trying to make playlists more influential than albums because I mean I, I imagine probably because they're like trying to go public and want to like 
have all of these different like points as to like why they're the most like powerful thing in music or something. And they want people to like invest in them. It's, it's like, so weird. Cause so the future of music, like, <laughs> yeah, like, like there's this playlist <laughs> on Spotify, for instance, called rap caviar, right, which yeah. is apparently like the, if not the place to break new rap artists, like one of the top three mm-hmm. places on the internet. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And like, I feel like, probably if it were up to spotify like every genre would have like their rap caviar and like if you wanted to like break an artist you'd have to go through like you know this playlist or something and i don't know it's interesting seeing like it just renders everything as wallpaper yeah totally i mean like there so when i started working while writing this article i like slow quickly realized that like this is like one story, but there's like so many ways in which this is like completely changing music culture or like trying to, and so many different stories to be told. And like one of the things I feel like is like, yeah, like playlists, it's kind of just like a, it's like a contemporary um, interpretation of like music or something, but it's like trying to turn like all music into that. Like I feel like people in the industry, like, I don't know if they, sometimes they say things and I don't know if they're saying it like in a good way or a bad way. (laughs) Like people will be like, oh yeah, music is just this like lean back thing now. And I'm just like, do you mean that in a positive way or a negative way? Because that's like dystopian as fuck to me to be like, oh yeah, like, you know, like people are having a barbecue. They'll just put on their like Sunday barbecue playlist. And I'm like, what? Like who wants music to just become like, you know, there's like the indie cleaning playlist. And I'm just like, that's so... It's so easy to be a passive music fan. And, and the thing is, yeah. and, and, and the thing that, I think the thing that, that always, uh, drives me insane, like morning to night, is you see these habits repeated like turtles all the way down. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, and I'm, and I'm not going to name any particular artists in this because I'm talking about smaller artists, but I mean, you see even uh, in you know, whatever we're going to call DIY culture or or, or punk or anything like that. In different things, you know, there there is people love a lot of music, like aesthetics mm-hmm. that is just, and you'll see the way they talk about it. Like they'll talk about it like, oh, I, I put it on the background and, you know, mm-hmm. I don't engage in it, you yeah. know, and that's. And I want to go ahead and like just throw my cards on the table here just so I'm not accused of being dishonest or anything. I do do a playlist for Spotify for this company <laughs> called The Dowsers. You monster. Uh, it's like the best. And well, it used to be called different things. Now it's called the best indie rock songs of the month. And I'm proud of it. I think I pick really good stuff. I try to promote people. I uh, support like EMA. and But we also do stuff like Grizzly Bear, who are great, but you know, the popular stuff. But And the people I work with are all very nice. But that said, I think what you mean, what you're saying is all very interesting. I like all the qualifiers we're doing on this episode. No, 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 just like I've been doing a little side work for the third (laughs) right, and it's just you know, it's just like, but I'm you know, they're, I mean, we just have we have a good time. We just, uh, it's not. But but like I do agree with what you're saying, and I think it's very interesting what you were saying about uh, getting rid of the personal messaging. In a weird way, it reminds me a lot of like pivoting the video, which is like let's get rid of like all these smart writers and just have like these videos it's all in a weird way companies wanting to get rid of like the creative voice and just like present the brand as like this monolithic entity but at least as far as me as a person that's growing up reading you reading about stuff i think i hopefully think we can all agree you fall in love with a writer's voice a creative person's voice and that's kind of like what you love but for a brand it's better to like de-emphasize that person's voice and just like present itself which I think where DIY kind of comes in is like, okay, we have to connect with people. It's why we like music. It's why we like anything. 
And we had to figure out ways to do it on our own to kind of guide us through. Yeah. I mean, it gets into deeper things too. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. sort of like if everybody just uses music as uh background, will the Republic survive? You know, yeah. pro- pro- probably, you yeah. know, it's, it gets to this thing like, this is so important to us. Yeah. yeah. But I, if, go on. Please. I feel like it's like the erasure of voices uh, of human yeah. curators mm-hmm. actually in favor of bolstering just like the the brand or yeah. like you know um to me actually is you know i think it's like representative of a bigger like more systemic issue in the world which um okay so when i think of that like i i think it's really related to this word that um one of my like favorite writers Asher taylor came up with called um photomation which is like f-a-u-x-t-o-m-a-t-i-o-n like the idea that like these things are happening like by like be things that are being created by machines but they're actually being created by people but like the people are kind of being like written out of the story and it's like this like faux idea that it's um that the machine is smarter than people but actually like it's not and it's like you know something that kind of happens like across the board and like lots of different ways, but it seems like really unhealthy for music culture to just like pretend that people aren't making playlists and pretends that they're like just Spotify play- playlists. Yeah. And I feel like there's like a lot of confusion about, um, you know, like what playlists are made by algorithms and what playlists are made by people. And like a lot of like misunderstanding, like a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of people think that like Spotify weekly discover playlists are like made by human curators and they're like, you know, it's not, it's not like, it's like they're like made, they're like algorithmically crafted or whatever. And like, I don't think that there's, I feel like this whole like world space is something that like artists, like if artists are trying to have like capital C like careers and like make their whole living off of music, they're going to have to like, learn how to like navigate these platforms so like i don't think it's it's not necessarily like you know bad if like you know you're like making spotify playlists and championing independent artists or like if artists decide that they want to start having like a playlist of all of their favorite music so that their fans can follow it and like know what they're up to or like whatever i think that it's just like the demystification of like how all of them are created and how these platforms work is like really important so that people like know that this playlist isn't being made by like this person and this one's being made by a machine. Otherwise it just all like gets like, I don't know. It's hard to talk about too, because I feel like it's these things, these topics that like people are still like figuring out how to yeah. like talk and about. It's very, and it's very easy to poo poo because they, they're, they're just like, well, you know, ooh. Which I wasn't in danger of just two minutes ago, yeah. you know, where it would like be like, well, you know, is, mm-hmm. is it the end of the world, you know? Yeah. But it's it's historically hard to convince people to care about being human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I was about to say, like, we're losing the human element. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, like, isn't that, like, one of the things that makes, like, you know, we were talking about earlier, it makes being involved in music meaningful is because yeah. it's like this thing that connects you with like other people and their ideas and stuff. And if you're just writing out the people that are idea involved that are coming out with the ideas, like it's not meaningful to really like Spotify or something. Like I feel like I've heard a bunch of people I know who like work for record labels talk about this thing where like their artist gets on some playlist and they want to like write to the person who put it on it to thank them or like send them a record <laughs> and actually like, you know, 
that no one made that playlist. Right, they're like, right. all right, like, yeah. who do we send the thank you to? Like, oh, no one, because yeah. like you send it to the person who programmed this algorithm or something. Like, no, yeah, yes, yeah, I don't know. It's that's just, actually a thing that people like people don't really know about the the industry. Uh, you're sort of like a lot of artists. You know, would do used to be when somebody would play you under the college radio station, like your label would ask the artist to actually call or write mm-hmm. every single DJ that was playing their band and thank them. And I think it was, it was certainly more of a thing in the eighties and nineties, but um, even in like whatever, 2010 or something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, whatever the, 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 the 15 college radio stations that were playing like my band at the time, like I had to call them up and be like, and they were like, yeah, like one or two of them were like, oh, cool. And the rest were like, what? 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 Oh, leave yeah. me alone. <laughs> All right. I feel like we were getting to a very dark dystopian place here. So as we yeah. wrap it up, let's try to like uh, <laughs> think of something like, let's try to end this on a good note. Okay. Like for us, for us, as dystopian as all this can be, yeah. we still have each other and it's still possible to connect with each other through music and through the things we do. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about like what, of all the things you've done in DIY culture, what is the happiest thing you're most proud of? Or what is like the most thing you've ever gotten out of it as far as like connecting with people, promoting artists, things of that nature? Big question I know, but. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I guess we, okay, let me, let me yeah. try to answer. Well, I would say that I wholesale reject this need to end on a happy note. All right. We're, we're, yeah. we're doomed. Okay. Thank I, you. But yeah, what's your happiest memory, Liz? Interesting. Or right, here's a better, better way to phrase that unwieldy question I throw out there. Uh, in the end, do you think it's all worth it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's how I know, like, <laughs> most of my friends and, like, you know, a lot of the, I don't know, a lot of the work that I'm proudest of is, like, work that has appeared on platforms that I, where, you know, it's a thing where I believe in the thing that I've written, but I also believe in the platform that it's been published on. Um, so, Obviously, like in terms of self-made media, I feel strongly in that way. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like, hmm. Good question. Uh, but I mean, I think, I think that's, you know, with, with like the, the, the idea of fighting against insurmountable odds as, as, a, as a life-affirming thing. Totally. Is really important. Um, and without it, we wouldn't have most of you know, the music that we care about, most of the art that we care about. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have uh, Liz Pelly's favorite genre of music, folk punk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, we wouldn't have, like that this is a constant theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Huh. I don't know. It's, it's a really good question. Like, I feel like when you um, get involved in these sorts of, like, community-based projects too, like the, you're kind of, you know, accepting that like, it's not like an easy pursuit and that there are going to be like a lot of things that are like challenging about them, but like you kind of like take on those challenges as kind of like part of the work or whatever. So like, I don't know, I think about this in like a micro way with like project, like the media, like it's not like, oh, you know, it's not like the easiest thing in the world to like put together, but like, you know, It's not a good example. I don't know. But, you know, you, you just kind of, like, take on, like, the, the challenges of things because that's part of 
like what makes it meaningful or something yeah um yeah i also like huh i mean work work with dignity <laughs> to to like to add to add to others dignity yeah you know is is, and you it's know, just is nice to know that's all right if you're cool if you're a music fan out there and you find like and you don't want to lean in or you don't want to uh lean back if you don't want to pass experience you can yeah. find this world you can if you work hard you can find music that matters to you and through that you can find people who matter to you that's definitely true um i back that and you will also find within that community the same number of petty useless pieces of shit as you would in any other world yeah we want we want yeah. <laughs> you guys are on point <laughs> <laughs> well, Zach wants to make sure we don't know I'm too happy. Yeah, know. listen, I, mean, it's I, interesting. Just, I just want the kids to yeah. know what they're going through. Actually, through. like, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I feel like the dark dystopian stuff, though, like to me, like is ending on a happy note because it's ending on like an engaged note where we're like, you know, like shit is going in a really strange direction. And like, instead of just like ignoring it, like we have to like confront it or something. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like. There are so many reasons why, like, you know, at the beginning you were kind of alluding to this, like, disappearance of, like, DIY culture. And I feel like there, there are, like, so many different things, reasons for that. And, you know, like, one of them being, um, you know, like, the economics and, like, changing economics of, like, cities and real estate and, um, like, like, that huge systemic stuff but like also i think that like the internet plays it into it a lot too and like people just like not um i don't know feeling like a sense of like autonomy over their platforms mm -hmm. online or something and i feel like even though to some people like talking about spotify playlists probably seems like it has nothing to do with talking about like being involved in like a collective diy space like i really i like do feel like they're like extremely connected if you're thinking about trying to like encourage people to like have more control over like their platforms um in physical spaces and also on the internet because that's how people, you know, connect and share and discover stuff now. Um, so I don't know. And there, it's hard because like anytime you start talking about like um, coming up with new ideas for how we can rethink like digital platforms or something, like people either just like really skeptical because you sound like a tech bro who's mm -hmm. trying to like come up with some sort of like, you know, technological solutionism Way to disrupt. oriented disruption for mm -hmm. whatever bullshit, like fucking stop. <laughs> and, but I feel like there, there, there are, is also like this way where like artists and like, you know, people who know their shit online can like, work together to make stuff that's like actually like radical and exciting. And I don't know, I feel like I see like a lot of people see like, you know, there are, it's just like this, like, I feel like a lot of stuff's coming to a head right now. And like on like the, uh, using the internet as a way of like communicating about like DIY culture, you, you just like get wrapped up in these like filter bubbles and the same shit. It's just like echoing over and over again. It's having like real effects on like the way people navigate like DIY spaces because I feel like 
I see all these bands who are like, you would consider like young DIY bands who are like, oh, like, you know, we have to get a booking agent and a manager and get signed and all this stuff. Like, and I think it's because it's like, what is fed back to you through like the echo chamber, like the bands that have all that stuff, like rise to the top. And like, you don't, it's not necessarily as easy to see like examples of people who are like doing things completely on their own terms and like having it work, like just when you open your laptop and look at your newsfeed. So I feel like, I feel like the realities of like algorithmic um, information sharing of culture, like are, is actually having like material impacts on like the rate, the speed at which people engage in these systems. Yeah. I mean, I, didn't, it, it, I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I, I think I wonder if, uh, I feel like there was, I don't really remember a time when there wasn't still the majority of young bands that were like, we need to get a booking agent. We need to get signed, you know, oh, okay. but having said that yeah. now they all think that we need a, a booking agent, a publicist, a, you know, we need to know all these people that, you know, and, and, uh, and I think you see the side that I don't see, which is the bands that are surviving off, off their music without doing those things. And I think those bands do need to be elevated. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I always want to talk to people like who have been in like these sorts of like music scenes, like, you know, for like longer than me, it's just, like about whether or not the, this trend is like actually current or just like this thing that has like always existed. Or and just, of like, course, being signed means a million other things. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's true. You know, when I was when I was young, I wanted to be signed to to kill rock stars. You know, it's not like I want yeah. to be signed to Warner Brothers. Yeah, but I sure as or shit like didn't want to do it myself. By Warner Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Of yeah, course. yeah. It's interesting, but yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I feel like I just went on a big tangent, but what I like no, meant great. to say is that like, I feel like ending on like a like engaged note isn't necessarily ending on a, a negative note. Cause it actually, to me is like, I feel like hopeful because it's like, if you're engaged in thinking about what the um, things are that you're up against, it means that you actually think that maybe there's something that you could do about it. Um, and, and that there's something worth fighting for. Yeah. Well, I think that's probably a pretty good uh, place to end it. Okay, cool. Liz, thank you for time and for dropping by. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Liz. And we will see you next time. Thank you. This has been Words and Guitars. Hey, guys. I'm Lissa Mandel. I'm Philip Cassell. And we're here from The The Bitch Bitch Seat, the podcast. It's an interview show where we talk to guests about the horrible and beautiful parts of their youth. I like to think of it as an adult talk show and tell. A grown-up show and tell. There you go. Like that. So for a teaser, here's some magnetic poetry that I wrote on my fridge when I was 12. Hit it, Phil. Dreams of whispered music felt snow white and lathered me in delirious symphonies. The ache within is black and bitter. A thousand frantic shadows scream and chant bitterly. I sleep on a lake of a thousand diamonds. You were 12? Yeah, I was way ahead of my time. Fair enough. Tune in. This has been an Atlantic Transmission production. Hey!